Today's scripture reading begins in Genesis 1-1. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was the morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was already there. In the beginning, God spoke and light shone in the darkness. In the beginning, God spoke, and mountains came crashing out of the waters. Genesis 1 is perhaps one of the most amazing, awe-inspiring chapters of the entire Bible. And yet, because this book and this chapter stand in opposition to modern science, in opposition to what our public schools teach, in opposition to what our universities teach, we often feel like we have to argue for the very book itself, and in the end, rarely do we look at and preach what the chapter says. As a result, what I want to do is I want to take two weeks to focus on this glorious text. My aim for today is to overview the structure of this passage, make sure we're clear on the big picture of what's going on here, and then I want to deal with some of the questions that come up as a result. Next week, I want to circle back with the structure firmly in mind and really dig into the details. So next week we'll look at, say, each day of creation, culminating, of course, with the creation of man. Uh, we'll look at the cultural mandate or God's command to man to, to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. We'll look at God resting on the seventh day and His being well pleased with all that He's done. So today, structure and some questions. Next week, really working through the passage. So, I invite you, if you're not already there, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Let me just say as you're turning there, I mentioned this last week, but as we go through Genesis, we will cover sections that are much longer than what we're used to, having just finished a lengthy series through the book of Ephesians. This is by design. Ephesians is an epistle. There we tend to drill down, try to follow the logic of the biblical writer to look at how, you know, this phrase works with this phrase and then put the whole thing together. Genesis is narrative. And when we cover narrative, especially Old Testament narrative, we want to cover it at the narrative level. Um, We'll be looking at how the narrative fits the whole of the book, and also how the narrative points us to Christ. And so, this morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 through 2 verse 3. That's the first narrative. We know that chapter and verses came later. This was a bad chapter division, so we're looking at chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, the first narrative. And the first thing that I want you to notice in this section, this narrative of creation God inspired for His people is that it's very structured, demonstrating that every single thing that happened at creation was all part of God's grand design. I've tried to capture that a bit for you on 
the structure that I have in your outline there in the gathering guide. So you might want to look at that as comparing this. The first two verses make it clear that He created everything out of nothing, what theologians often refer to as creation ex nihilio. In the beginning, God created. There was no matter for Him to reach down, pick up, and sort of fashion. There was no molecules floating around for God to use. There was only God, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. This is likewise taught by the inspired writers of the New Testament as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, in the book of Hebrews, we read, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And this is where Moses begins, showing us that God created everything out of nothing. Then in verse 2, he says that the earth is formless and void, and this, this formless and void really becomes the foil by which he, he builds the rest of the creation narrative. You, you have this formless and void world, the Spirit of God hovering over it, and then, and then God speaks. He first forms the earth, making it inhabitable, and then He fills it once it's ready to sustain life. And you see that when you look closely at the six days of creation. Notice that in days one through three, He forms everything needed to sustain life. Only when that's done does He begin placing living creatures in His creation. That's over the next three days. When my oldest son was younger, he wanted a lizard, a, a, a bearded dragon to be precise. And don't get me started because I'm not a reptile fan, but he loved them and we love him and we ended up with this stupid lizard. And, and we learned really quickly, if you want a lizard, you don't just go buy a lizard and let him run around your house. You you have to work to keep these rascals healthy. You, you have to create some sort of environment where they can thrive, a, a terrarium. And because they're cold-blooded, it's usually too cold in your, in your home, and so you've got to get a good cage, you've got to get a good lining, uh, you've got to get these specific lights, you put thermometer in there, make sure everything's right, and only then do you go buy this dumb little lizard to run around in there. And, and my analogy breaks down if you push it too far, but you see a bit of that in the structure here of Genesis. The first three days, God is creating everything we need to live. You need light, obviously, and notice that God is our light at first, and I'll reserve comment on that until next week, except to say that if you struggle with that, you probably haven't got to Revelation 21, where we see that where it's all going is there will be no need for a sun, because God is our light. God creates light. He creates the sky and the waters. He creates the land. Not only the land, He creates the plants that will serve as food. Then if you look at the next three days, we see God filling the earth. The first three, He's forming the earth. The second three, He's filling the earth. Or as my friend Jim Hamilton says in his excellent book, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment, Jim says, the first three days, God prepares the canvas. The next three days, the canvas is adorned by the Master, end quote. We see God forming the earth. We see God filling the earth. And I want you to notice the correspondence between the forming and the filling, between the first three days and the second three days. Day one, God creates light. Corresponding day four, He creates the sun, moon, 
and stars that govern the light and the darkness. Day two, God creates the sea and the sky. Corresponding day five, He creates the birds that fill the sky, the fish that fill the sea, the waters. Of course, the whole narrative is, is, is pushing toward day six, right? The narrative makes it clear this is the most important day of all, not just the fact that it's saved for last, but also notice that day six, just like the corresponding day three, notice these are the only two days where God speaks twice. In day three, God spoke and caused the land to come bursting forth from the water, and then He speaks a second time, calling forth all kinds of vegetation that would serve as food. In day six, God speaks and creates the animals. Then He speaks a second time, creating mankind in His own image to rule over His creation. And so you see the artistry, the grand design to the creation account. And and there's probably a lot more that we could say here. The fact that this whole narrative centers around the number seven is is obvious. And of course, the number seven is the number of completion and perfection in the Bible. And so this whole account demonstrates the completion, perfection of God's creation as He works for six days, and then He rests on the seventh. Now, some of you who know me know that I am an absolute minimalist it comes to numerology in the Bible, okay? To be honest, I'm always suspicious of people trying to make numbers say certain things. And even here, I wouldn't want to overstate this, but in light of the beautiful structure of this text, numerous scholars point to the repetition of number seven, not just in the fact that there's seven days, but throughout the whole narrative. So, so for example, they note things like the divine evaluation. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It occurs seven times. On the seventh, it was very good. What's more, the first verse has seven words in the original. The second verse has 14 words. The seventh paragraph, the seventh day, has three sentences, each with seven words and contains the middle phrase, the seventh day. Thus, Ken Matthews in his commentary says, this numerical repetition speaks to the literary unity of the narrative and emphasizes the idea of perfection and completion in God's finished creation, end quote. So, so the first point that we really have to see this morning, with or without the sevens, by the way, you can take them or leave them, but the point that you've got to see is the absolute beauty and perfection of God's creation and how that's presented to us by the biblical writer. Everything happened just as He desired. Not one single thing is out of place. The all-powerful, purposeful designer set the limits for His creation, and creation hearkened to His voice. Now, this is quite clear when God needs to put Job in his place, questions him about creation. Demonstrating his sovereignty over every part of creation, he says to Job, hey Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Hmm? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding, who determined the measurements? Surely you know. And of course, the whole point in that questioning is that he didn't know because only God knows, because only God was there, which is why that course of questioning shut Job's mouth. 
So, so, so the Bible's crystal clear. There was, there was nothing, nothing but nothing. But God was there, and he created all there is, and he was very, very purposeful in how he did it. And not one thing, not one single thing happened by random chance. And this is important. This is something, when you think of creation account, that every Christian must agree on. God is the creator. If you disagree with that statement, you need to be crystal clear that you do not operate with a biblical worldview, okay? God created everything there is out of nothing. That is an important faith statement that all Christians agree on. He created all there is, including the first man and woman, a literal Adam and Eve. And the Bible demands that we agree on that. That being said, aside from some of these basic use the word basic, vital facts, this discussion does lead to our consideration of a few areas where honest Bible-believing Christians disagree, and we should say are free to disagree. Things that should not be considered a test of orthodoxy, like some of the statements I just made. Now, this is specifically tied to questions of the age of the earth, the intersection between science and the biblical creation account. Here we must admit that none of us were there at creation. We, we have the text, right? And that should be primary for us as Christians. We have the text. Somewhere beneath that we have science. And we're often found wrestling trying to make the two fit because they really don't given some of the current modern scientific presuppositions of the day. As a result, genuine Christians who believe the Bible, who hold fast to the biblical teaching of God as creator and vital things like the historicity of Adam and Eve, do in fact differ in how to read this narrative. And we want to think through some of what I'm talking about. Most Christians from the beginning of the Christian church have believed that this text teaches that God created everything in six literal days and rested on the seventh. That was the predominant view in the early church. This view has stood the test of time through the great reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin who held this position. You still have modern heavyweights today like Albert Muller, the president of the seminary that I went to, John MacArthur, and countless others who hold to this view that we can call a young earth view of creation. Young earth because if God created in six literal days and He didn't create over millions upon millions of years. On the other hand, even from the early days of the Christian church, thoughtful Bible-believing Christians have believed that this text did not demand six literal 24-hour days, and thus the earth could be much older. Some who have held this view include the venerable church father, Augustine. So, some of the most important defenders of inerrancy 
And I point this out because some push that this pushes against inerrancy, but people like Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield argued for an old earth. More recently, you have guys like Tim Keller, R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, if I'm reading them correctly. And so let's consider a few ways that thoughtful Bible-believing Christians get to an old earth view. And I'll tip my hand, that's not where I personally land, but I have friends and mentors who do, and I can assure you they love Jesus and they take the Bible very, very seriously. One way of arguing for an old earth understanding of Genesis 1 that fits the scientific aging of the earth is to argue that Genesis 1 is poetic, okay? Consider the beauty and symmetry of the text we were just talking about. Now, the result of that is there are some who look at this beauty and symmetry, and they call it poetry, and they say that it paints a poetic picture of creation that may or may not have much to do with how God actually created. In other words, they would say the point of Genesis 1 is simply to make the basic point that God created, unless they would argue that Genesis 1 doesn't touch on, say, the age of the earth or any other scientific questions, because after all, it's simply a poetic reading of the reality that God created the heavens and the earth. From my perspective, and again, I know and respect folks who argue for this, but from my perspective, I personally don't think this is a great way to get to an old earth view because Genesis 1 is not Hebrew poetry. Uh, My younger brother is a Hebrew scholar. He is an Old Testament professor in Amsterdam. This is something he and I have talked on a lot, and he's adamant on this. This is not poetry. Uh, Gordon Wenham, in his commentary on Genesis calls this elevated prose, saying that it's, yes, careful literary composition, but not poetry. See, see, Hebrew poetry is very easy to distinguish from narrative, and this section ain't it, okay? So, I have a hard time saying that that's why I get to an old earth, because it's poetic. Second view for understanding the age of the earth in line with modern science is known as what's called the gap theory. Here it's argued there's a gap between verses 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1, and then the fall of Satan happens between verse 1 and verse 2, and thus the earth becomes chaotic. That's how they take formless and void in verse 2. And so, essentially, it's what you find in verse 3 is recreation. And while I can appreciate some of the theology with this view, it certainly would make sense. It would help me to think through when the fall of Satan happened, if I could really come to that in my mind, but I personally don't see that in the text itself, and I don't see anything later in the Bible that pushes me to say, hey, there's a gap, and I think that's where Satan fell and and, and all of that. Uh, Some get to an old earth through what's known as the day-age theory. I'm going to give you two that are really closely related. The day-age theory pivots off of the Hebrew word yom, which could indeed be a 24-hour day, or it could be a period of time. I think in terms of Genesis 2, 4, in the day God made the heavens and the earth. It, it, words used like that regularly. And, and, and so these folks would say, since it can mean a period of time, this can help fit with modern science. And the, the days, they would say, correspond more or less to the scientific geological ages. Uh, closely related to that would be the analogical day view. Again, pivoting off of this word, yom. Some call this the God's days 
uh, view. And here, similar to day age, without trying to say the days follow the uh, geological periods, they assert that these are God's work days. And so, for instance, there's a degree to which we could say that we're still in the seventh day, right? God created on the seventh, He rested. Could say that we're still in the seventh day, or the psalmist says, the day of the Lord is like a thousand years. And thus they would say the text doesn't really tell us anything about the period of time. Could be short, could be very long. Their point is it just doesn't dictate. And many of them would, would look and say, look, even the first three days, you don't have a sun and a moon yet, so it can't necessarily be a, a literal day. And of the, of the non-24-hour day theories, to me, take this what it's worth, but to me, this one seems the most plausible. Again, because the wording of Genesis 1 allows for it, and for the reader of the Bible, you might be reading along and see the word day used elsewhere and say, huh, I wonder if that's what's going on in Genesis 1. And I share some of these theories, and, and, and there's certainly others, to make this one important point this morning, which is this. I would plead with all of us in this church not to make this a test of orthodoxy because there are some groups out there, you probably know some of them, that do precisely that. Don't get me wrong, if someone denies the historicity of Adam, that is a major problem biblically. The New Testament affirms that, and you lose some of your doctrine of salvation without that. If somebody argues that God didn't really create out of nothing, or argues for some sort of theistic evolution where you start getting into random chance, we've got all sorts of serious major problems. But there's a number of things that aren't as clear. And again, many sincere Christians, while affirming God created everything out of nothing, affirming the biblical account of Jesus, hold two different views here. And as long as we don't abandon what the Bible teaches, I think we should be able to agree to disagree on things. I like what Dr. Brian Chappell, Brian Chappell was the pastor emeritus at Grace Presbyterian Church and and, uh, president emeritus at Covenant Theological Seminary. Dr. Chapel says, quote, some of us are premillennial, some of us are amillennial, some of us are postmillennial. There are serious questions among us about the timing and the events of the end of the world. Still, we recognize that people can differ over the timing issues and still believe the Bible is entirely true, and we accept these differences without accusing one another of being unorthodox. He says the same ought to be possible in the discussions we're having over the timing of days at the beginning of the world as well. And I agree with that. By the way, I say that as one who holds to the position usually a lot less willing to work with others than the other positions. See, in my own pilgrimage, I've gone back and forth in my mind over the years, given that I wasn't there at creation, and that the Bible wasn't written to be a scientific explanation of every single detail that happened, and that the whole point of this account is really setting the table to get to the fall of man and God's plan of redemption. Given all of that, I want to be humble here, as I trust there's things that I might not understand. But that being said, I do hold to what's referred to as a young earth view, as I hold to six literal days of creation with God resting on the seventh. For the record, let me just say this, I don't believe God even needed six days. I mean, when you just get a sense for the fourth day, when the inspired writer says God made the sun, moon, and oh yeah, the stars. Little side note, he just flung the stars out there. I mean, scientists say that our own galaxy has somewhere between 
100 to 300 billion stars, not even counting other galaxies, and God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. I mean, I went to the grocery store, I picked up bread, milk, and oh yeah, side note, grab some cookies. God creates the sun, the moon, and 300 billion stars, right? So, I don't think He needed six days, but it's what the text says, and I'll give you three reasons why I think a literal six days of creation is the best way to take it, just for your consideration to wrestle with. Because I do think, by the way, that even these things that are hard for us, we should wrestle with. So, first, I believe, as I read the text, this would be the, the way the original audience would have probably read Genesis 1, right? Sort of the Occam's razor approach. I don't think, for example, that they would have come along and read the day-age theory, the geological ages. I mean, that's modern science, you know, looking back on the text. I don't think they would have read the gap view. I just don't think that one's there. I do think it's possible, like I said, I think it's possible that they may well have read the days being God's days and thus say nothing about the timing, but I, I think the most straightforward reading is six literal days. And the second reason that I think this is directly related to the first, when you think of authorial intent, what's the author trying to get across here? It's important to remember that Moses gave the original audience and us not only the book of Genesis, but the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And in the Torah, you have the book of Exodus, and in particular, you have Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, one of the most foundational texts of the entire Old Testament, one that virtually every single Jewish man, woman, and child would have had memorized. And in commenting on the fourth commandment, he says, remember the commandment and keep it holy. And in commenting on that, Moses says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh. And the simplest way to read that is God created in six literal days and rested on the seventh, and you should work six literal days and rest on the seventh. Finally, and most important to me in my processing of things, and this is the one that pushed me over into this view, and it's a theological reasoning. In, in, in my own wrestling with this, this was the game changer. The Bible teaches very clearly that it was at the fall of man, Genesis 3, not Genesis 1, where sin and death enter into the world. So it's, not, it's not before that. So, so before Genesis 3, nothing died. Animals weren't eating animals yet because nothing's dying. It's at the fall, Paul says in Romans 8, that the whole earth is subjected to futility, but, but he says futility in hope. In hope of what? In hope of recreation. See, if the animosity between the lion and the lamb actually comes before Genesis 3, that, that destroys the biblical theological teaching of the restoration of the garden, the new heaven and the new earth, the, the garden of Eden restored where the lion and the lamb will once again hang out together. See, for me, and you can test this on your own, maybe you can help me, but for me, I can't square an old earth with dinosaurs eating dinosaurs, and that's typically why people go to old earth is the struggle with the dinosaurs, but I think you can have good arguments for dinosaurs living at the same time as people. That's another discussion altogether. But, but I can't square an old earth, dinosaurs eating dinosaurs, animals eating animals, until after the fall, right? Otherwise, you have to account for the fact 
that death was in the world long before Adam and Eve. Long before Adam and Eve, the lion was chasing and killing the lamb, and that doesn't work with my understanding of Scripture. And there's obviously a lot more we could say here, but I do believe there's some good answers for those who hold to a young earth in dealing with some of the scientific questions as to why, say, the earth appears so old. I mean, I'm probably pretty simple-minded, but there's the reality that when God creates Adam and Eve, He didn't create babies, right? So there's, by necessity, the appearance of age. When God said, let there be redwood trees, there wasn't seeds or even saplings. There were full-grown, majestic redwood trees. And if you would have gone and, and cut those down and looked at the lines, a scientist that day on the first day of creation would have said, that tree's 2,000 years old. And there's countless other scientific questions we could dig into if time permitted, but let me end this particular discussion with a few points. First, as we wrestle with all of this, we must launch and land any such discussions on the reality that the Bible is God's special revelation. It's inspired by God. It is inerrant. It is infallible, which means it's incapable of being wrong. It's infallible in all that it teaches, and it is therefore our ultimate authority for all things, so our statement of faith here at Christ Redeemer Church, which means as we wrestle with this, we keep coming back to Scripture. What's the Bible say? What's the Bible say? What's the Bible say? I think with that at the top, we can also affirm the old quip, all truth is God's truth, and thus natural revelation is God's revelation, and we can learn about God through natural revelation. So Romans 1. And what's more, we can admit that there have been times throughout the history of the church where science, our understanding of natural revelation, actually corrected our understanding of things like whether the earth was round or flat without disproving the Bible. Helped us to see we were simply reading it wrong. That said, we want to study hard. We want to understand these things to the best of our human ability, all the while having the category that in time it's just possible that the scientific scientific evidence could become so clear that it causes us to read the text differently, perhaps correct a misunderstanding we've had because, again, the text itself is infallible. We, the interpreters, are fallible. At the end of the day, natural revelation and God's special revelation will never truly stand at odds, even if they're difficult for us to square at a particular point in time. Finally, I do believe science is evolving, pun intended. There was a time when scientists believed that maggots, which seemed to appear on decaying meat, they were said to spontaneously generate from the meat. Right? Today we reject that. It's totally absurd. And today the whole theory of evolution, which has ardently taken aim at Christianity, seems to me to be a shaky hypothesis that many in the scientific world, even unbelievers, believe is on its last leg. I mean, the theory of evolution has absolutely no answer, no answer at all to how the world began. Yes, we evolved out of primordial soup, but where did the soup come from? Where did the first matter come from? Martians? The backs of crystals. I don't make those up. Those are things that well-known scientists have said. To me, it would seem that evolution is a philosophical non-starter here. The fact that life spontaneously generates out of nothing. On the other hand, asserting as Scripture does that God created everything out of nothing is actually far more credible 
even philosophically from my perspective, which is why many in the intelligent design movement like William Dembski argue that Darwinism is actually on its way out. I don't know whether it is or not. They certainly have a lot to fight for, so my guess is they'll fight on. But I do think the intelligent design movement has been very helpful in pointing out things like what they call irreducible complexity. That is, things in nature are so complex, so innately designed, that they are statistically impossible to just happen by random chance. But here's the deal. We could go on and on here, but I want to pause. And I just want to speak to any here this morning who are not yet trusting in Christ. Any here this morning that might wrestle at this point, whether some of my youth, maybe some adults. In no way do I pretend to have answered all the questions for you. But I would lovingly ask you to really question why the idea of eternal matter seems more clear than the idea of an eternal being. Both are faith statements. And what's more, I would want to point out that the unbeliever has a major interest in answering this question. You have to know, it's morally convenient for an unbeliever for there not to be a creator. So you should probably admit, the unbeliever should probably admit that they have as much at stake in this as a Christian. Christians are constantly told we have a philosophical bias in this whole discussion, and it's true, and we admit it. We should admit it. But so does the unbeliever. What's the expression? There's actually no unbiased science, right? The unbelieving worldview is as much at stake on this question as the Christian worldview. For the Bible asserts that God created all things. He spoke, and the world came into existence. Bible teaches us that He created for a purpose, and the purpose we see in the Scriptures is that we worship Him, and part and parcel of worshiping Him is obeying Him, living for Him. The Bible teaches us He has final say over our lives as our Creator, and the Bible makes it clear, and we know from our experience that none of us were thrilled with that idea naturally. In fact, the Bible teaches us that we've all rejected Him. And yet, God is so gracious, He didn't just wipe us out. He sent His Son to come and rescue us. We deserved His judgment for rejecting our very Creator. We deserve His wrath for making up other gods, for worshiping the creation over the Creator. And yet, we see in the Scriptures that God is a God of grace. God had a rescue mission in place from the very beginning. He sent His Son who suffered and died on the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserve. And so, friend, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, I would plead with you, look to Jesus. If you'd like to talk to somebody more, we'd love to talk to you because there's nothing more important than understanding where you land on this. All right, let me end our time going back to the text hit the big picture, and then look at one of the ways this passage points us to Jesus. We've seen in the big picture of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 that God is a God of great order. That's captured in the structure of the text. Verse 1, we have the very beginning, and God creates out of nothing, but He's not done. Verse 2 tells us that the earth is formless and void. 
You know something's about to happen because the Spirit of God's hovering over the water, so there's expectation in the text, and then God speaks. Creates by speaking. By speaking, by the Word, He both forms the earth to make it a hospitable place for created beings, and then He fills it. And He does all of that by speaking. He does it all through the Word. And of course, the New Testament picks up on this and makes it clear. He does all of this through Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 1. We'll land the plane here. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that God created all things through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul certainly affirms this in Colossians 1.16. There Paul says, For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So Paul says, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And so we see we were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And yet all we have to do is fast forward to the just two chapters in Genesis to know that we would need new creation to really do that. And thus the creation account, even at the very beginning, points us to Jesus, the Word of God, who created the world and would bring about new creation in our lives. Now, this new creation is clear in a text like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where we read that God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, there's new creation. The same God who said, let there be light, must say, let there be light in our hearts if we're really going to honor Him as Creator as we should. And that's why one chapter later, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2.10, looked at this several times going through it, Paul said that we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're obviously going to drill down on this more and more as we go, but what we see in this book and throughout the whole Bible is that all creation moves from creation to new creation. We move from garden to garden. We were created to worship our Creator and enjoy Him forever. And thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ we're able to do that now, and will be able to do that for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Pray that You would continue to form and fashion us into Your Word. Father, I pray that as we think about your creation. I pray that it would sufficiently blow our minds 
I pray that we wouldn't sit back and try to think through some easily explainable understanding of these things, but take your word seriously. You are God. You created. You are good. Oh, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for redeeming us. We thank you for new creation. And we pray that we would worship you and glorify you in all we do. Lord, as we behold you, even as we sing this song, behold our God. Lord, I pray that you would grow us in worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.